Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hello, and welcome back to the Christmas Around the World series. Today's is a little out of the box for this series, and that's because Diana's childhood, as well as the culture she was raised in, and the Christmases she enjoyed were really not defined primarily by the places she lived geographically. And in fact, her family moved 22 times in 17 years. Rather, Diana's experiences, including her Christmases, were more defined by the communities that she and her family traveled between as they went around the world. Diana was raised in the Bruderhof, which is a global collection of self-sustaining farms where all members surrendered their personal goods, including Christmas presents, and accept roles for the greater good of the community. Although Diana did ultimately choose to leave the Bruderhof community when she was 19, moving to New York City to work as a chef, she retains really warm memories of some aspects of this very unique childhood. And some of the best of these memories include Christmas time, which were full of German Christian tr- German Christmas traditions, like decorating simply with apples and candles, singing spiritual songs, and making classic bakes like these traditional British mincemeat pies that she shared with us. From the time that Diana was in high school, she spent increasingly more hours in the kitchen, which she truly loved, although it was very hard labor and uh, she was assigned it by the leadership in her community. She While in the kitchen, she prepared daily suppers for communities of 400 people, which is amazing. (laughs) I think being a chef must be easy for her. So I'm thrilled to welcome Diana to the Christmas Around the World series today, and I'm so glad that you are here with us. One more thing, just before we jump into this interview, I would like to thank Parmigiano Reggiano, the cheese of the holiday season, for sponsoring this Christmas Around the World series. Parmigiano Reggiano is more than a cheese, it's a cornerstone of the Italian culinary culture. Sharing Parmigiano Reggiano with your guests is a rich experience filled with culture, history, of course, flavor. And in fact, here is Parmigiano Reggiano's own storied recipe. Almost 900 years ago, in 1254, Benedictine monks living in the Emilia Romana region in Italy created this cheese to extend the shelf life of the huge quantity of milk that their very healthy cattle were producing. During the 13 and 1400s, these monks had a monopoly on this cheese and exported it to different regions across Italy. And as the cheese became more popular, it spread to the rest of Europe. And now, almost a millennia later, you can be part of this story tradition at your own holiday gathering, as long as you choose Parmigiano Reggiano cheese. If you choose any other cheese, you won't be guaranteed it's made from the same three simple ingredients contained in Parmigiano Reggiano for 900 years now. And only with Parmigiano Reggiano are you guaranteed a wedge made and aged in these exclusive regions of Italy using the ancient techniques developed by monks from cows fed only with natural products without the use of any silage, fermented feeds, or animal flour. You can find Parmigiano Reggiano 
in the premium cheese or deli section of your local grocer or retailer. You will recognize it not only by the name on the package, but the unique rind, which is dotted with the Parmigiano-Reggiano name. I am so proud to be sponsored by Italy's Finest Cheese, and this season, you also can be proud to pair Parmigiano-Reggiano with any of these global desserts that my guests are sharing with your holiday spirits or as an appetizer to your favorite dish. You can visit the link in the episode's show notes to Parmigiano-Reggiano for more holiday inspiration. Thanks, and I'm so glad you're here today. Before we jump in and talk about Christmas in your childhood, I are you a chef now? Is that your profession? Yes. Oh, wow. I don't even think I realized that until when I was looking through those photos. So the picture of you holding the um, mincemeat pies, that's you. Yes, that is me. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, you're gorgeous (laughs) and look quite young. I think when I heard you lived um, in New York City for 15 years and now live in LA, I was expecting someone older. (laughs) You didn't think that I moved to New York City when I was 19. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've had had quite a life so far. So yes. Okay. Well, let's go ahead. No, I was just going to say I'm 33. I just turned 33. But yes, I have quite a fun story to tell. <laughs> I cannot wait to hear it. So let's jump in because I, um, I mean, I was intrigued. The second you emailed me, I was like, oh, yes, I need to hear about this um, <laughs> because I have no category right. for this whatsoever. Um, this doesn't like ring any kind of bell or, you know, spark any sort of familiarity with me when you wrote, um, I was actually born and raised in Christian communities living in self-sustainable farms all around the world, including England, Germany, and Australia. So like I said, the closest I could come in terms of coming up with a um, a category for this is, you know, in Israel, a lot of people go serve and I think they're called kibbutzes, like the, um, yes. but yeah. they're located in one place and you go to them. Um, right. This sounds different. Tell me about this. What is this? So this is called the Bruderhof. And it was started by a couple people that just wanted to get together and live in community way back um, in the day. And my grandparents actually were part of those original young people in England. And they came together and just wanted to share everything and live together and run through the fields barefoot. And they made flower garlands. They sang together. They cooked together. Very innocent, childlike, just sense of community. Mm. And fast forward many, many years, it developed into a larger organization, all based on the Bible, you know, living out their beliefs, basically in community, sharing everything, no personal property, no, that's including money, no families have money, everybody's, the hierarchy doesn't exist, doctors are the same as dishwashers, everybody has a role in the community, and everyone's children are taken care of, but then everybody goes to work and works in a certain department. And, you know, they've grown internationally. They're all over the world. They're very focused on missionaries. So they they really encourage outside. We called them outsiders growing up, but, Mm. you know, outside people outside the religions who come in and experience community there and to see what it's like to work and live and share everything. And many people join. Obviously, some people like me leave. Mm. Um, And, yeah, it's just 
piece of property where they either buy it already with buildings and homes and then they kind of establish themselves. Or, for example, in Australia, they went to the outback with the snakes and the spiders and literally there were many and Mm. kangaroos and they bought property and we planted trees, we built houses, um, you know, we grew our own cattle there. We we they now they're doing olive oil production and they make signs for all the local businesses. We sold pies, which is you know, the the thread throughout my entire history there was food. Obviously, we live off the land, we have our own gardens. Um all of our they had their own cattle and poultry and obviously fruits and vegetables, which was unique and challenging in its own way because you're living off of pumpkins for three months because that's what's in season. So um <laughs> Anyways, I'm getting carried away, but that's in a nutshell and feel free to obviously dive into anything Mm. for more details. Yes. Okay. So that's helpful to know the Bruder, you said Bruderhof community. Bruderhof, which means brotherhood. Brotherhood. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually just looked it up because I had never, I, like I said, I had never heard of it. And like you said, these are still in existence. And actually have family members there. Oh, okay. And it's, um, maybe a touch point for people again, who are just kind of trying to categorize this from the photos and the things I'm reading. It seems, um, again, I'm sure different, but sort of the most similar category I can put it in is if, um, especially here on the East coast, I think in the Midwest, we see, um, Amish and Mennonite communities, and it looks, um, similar to that in the fact that it's somewhat insular. Is that correct or no? Yeah, you... I'm saying very similar to Mennonites because the Amish, you know, a lot of them don't use any electricity and, you know, they wear black and white, but the Mennonites are a little more advanced in that mm-hmm. they do have cars and electricity and they wear colors. Um, so I, we more closely resemble Mennonites. I see. Now, would you have to have, um, besides wanting to share your possessions, would you have to have any sort of specific beliefs to fit in um, or to belong with this group of people? As a child or as an adult? Mm. Well, tell me <laughs> tell me what the difference is. As a child, you're not expected to hold the beliefs. Correct. You're sort well, of admitted based on your parents. Yes, you have mm-hmm. no choice. <laughs> as a child, of course, it's very much routine and discipline and don't ask questions, do what you're told, follow the cookie cutter structure of the Breederhof. 400 people getting together for communal meals every day, um, church meetings constantly. And this is your job. You're going to work in the factory or if you're lucky, you'll work in the kitchen. And it's very much just do what you're told and follow orders as a child. And then around the age of 18, they do expect you to decide if you're going to stay and become a member or you can leave and experience the outside world, which they actually encourage. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people do go back and join after that because the experience on the outside, as they say, is not exactly easy because you, I mean, you're coming from this sheltered environment. that's almost unrealistic Mm -hmm. when when you leave. So as an adult, now they actually separate baptism from membership and mm. becoming baptized doesn't mean you're becoming a member. But when I was there, baptism and membership were all one. Mm. Mm. So mm. you either decided that at the age of 18 and then you stayed and you got married and you had kids and lived there forever and never even thought about leaving once you were a member. I mean, that is the ultimate sin. <laughs> but mm. as a child, it's just, yeah, it's do what you're told. And, you know, when I was a very young child, life 
life was excellent and beautiful. And I mean, my father is a forager and we would go out picking all kinds of berries and mushrooms and hunting and fishing and really living off the land. And, and then when, once, you know, obviously I became a teenager and our family moved away actually for a year mm-hmm. and I was exposed to the outside world as a teenager, I came back and everything was very different, but food stayed my passion and mm-hmm. my pleasure and my happiness throughout all of that. So mm-hmm. I see now, um, it, in terms of um, the the lifestyle and then how that interacted first with your family and then you individually. Um, so you said earlier that, you know, a doctor would be the same as a farmer. So yes. could people be in these communities and sort of um, holding jobs in the outside world as doctors, professors, um, lawyers, teachers, and then they would uh, but but they they would be rooted in the community. You know, they would uh, go there for their meals. Again, not unlike many. Um, so I'm like a practicing Christian, and though I live and have many friends, I mean, in the world, there is some sense even for me that on Sunday, I kind of, um, I sort of always return, I guess you would say to the church. It's like yeah. this rhythm that you always return to. Is it like that, but you're returning daily? Or is this really like, if you are a member of the Bruderhof, you have a job right there on the community and you don't, yes. that's more yes, how it that is. is. That is exactly it. I yep. see. And they have, there's doctors and lawyers and people who have actually joined from the outside who had their own careers and professions and they brought all their materialistic goods and, you know, everything, their bank account and they just come there, they live and now they are a doctor if a doctor's needed on that Bruderhof mm. or maybe they're not a doctor anymore because they're needed to work on the farm. Okay. So there's very much that sense of no pride and mm. almost no talent in a way where they could view that as becoming too prideful if you're maybe too skilled at a certain profession. And it's, you know, it's very complex, but mm. humility is the main, the main point, I think. Um, mm. But everybody works there on the, on the actual community. I see. I see. Yeah. What were your parents before they joined? So my father was born there mm. um, in, in Paraguay, actually, because they had to leave Europe because it was during the Nazi era, and a lot of their members were German, so nobody wanted them uh. in Europe. Paraguay took them in, and my father was born there, and then mm. they moved back to England after the war. So he was born and raised in the Bruderhof. He left to go to agriculture business school in Pittsburgh, mm. and then he went back and joined. So he's kind of always been there. My mother actually was a professional hairdresser in Pennsylvania. Wow. She was Catholic, ah. not born and raised in the Bruderhof. She met my father when he left and was very intrigued and was at a point in her life. She was 21 years old. She had no purpose, no passion, no, she was depressed. And, you know, her father was an alcoholic and mm. she just wanted something to live for. And my dad, I guess, spoke about the community and the Bruderhof and simple life on the farm where you grow everything and take care of each other. And that just drew her to it. And she brought everything and moved there with him and they stayed there. They're still there. And they had seven children. Wow. Of which you are number three, three. Okay. All boys and me. (laughs) Oh, oh, six brothers. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. Incredible. Okay. Um, now you traveled a lot as part of this. Is that also yes. something where there's sort of um I can see how if the goal is to um 
keep people humble, so to speak, that um, it's actually very much like the military or even the foreign service. I've had a foreign service friend say they move you regularly. So you can't establish too much um, power in any one place. Correct. And I, and again, as a child, I viewed it a certain way. And now as an adult, I'm trying to interpret it differently. I'll never truly know, obviously, Mm. because there's almost a committee on each community that decides who's needed where and I'll never understand why we moved 22 times in the 22 times. I was there. Yes. It's, you know, Diana. And it it was crazy. And there's some families that stayed in the same community their entire life. I Um, see. I I don't know. I mean, I know our family was a little bit of an independent family as far as our personalities. You know, Mm -hmm. we were very passionate children and I was just really into cooking and baking and didn't want to be bothered with anything else. And I think mm-hmm. some of our strong personality maybe didn't fit the mold at times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would tell our family we needed to go somewhere else and try to work on us, I guess, and come closer to God and closer to the church. Um, or, you know, that we were needed somewhere else, which again, as a child, you don't really understand any of it. And now I've learned to just not try to understand it all and just accept it. That was, you know, what my parents had committed to. And the church just mm-hmm. told us, you know, you're needed here. And this is what we are asking of you. And you say, okay. And the next day you pack up and you leave. Incredible. So I have, like, we could definitely do a whole episode on the Bruderhof. And I'm, I'm going to try yes. to transition to Christmas really, really quickly here. But I do have one right. kind of, like, deep, deep question to go into. Because as you were explaining this situation, <clears throat> even before you told me about the moving 22 times in 17 years, uh, I was like, okay, there's a collision coming here. There's a crash happening because we have values of um, humility and um, sort of uh, communal, like, I mean, communism in the very pure sense of it. We are all the same. We are all equal. But in order for this to work, right, like 400 people to live together and have meals together, there has to be some kind of hierarchy or structure that like sort of automatically starts to upend some of those ideals. So how did that work? So there is a elder who oversees all the communities. Um, I think there's maybe... 15 to 19 of them worldwide uh-huh. and then each community has its own pastor let's say they called it a servant because again the word right the, right the humble word a servant of god and he would have a wife and you know that there was maybe like another servant who worked with him and they basically would run all of the church meetings and they would relay any changes within the movement um the movement again is a word they use for the entire operation. Um, I see. And they would distribute information that way. Once in a while, they would have communal discussions with just the members to discuss topics, but it was very much driven by the hierarchy, like you said, you know, through the elder mm-hmm. and the servants on each specific community. And then, of course, each department, like there was a work distributor who was responsible for putting everybody in the different departments and the different roles and making sure the day to day operations were running. Um, and there was somebody in charge of all the financial, the financial side of obviously the money that they had to make, which was another topic. Um, 
but there were p- the practical department heads, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. and then also the spiritual leaders, which were the servants. I see. Okay. All right. We will go to Christmas now, and then maybe on our way back out of Christmas, we'll come back to more of this. Uh, yes, I am fascinated. But as we go into Christmas, so, you know, this is called Christmas Around the World. And of course, the idea is that everyone comes and tells me about Christmas from their home culture. You are a little bit different. So in these 17 years, you moved 22 times, which I feel like I have to keep saying out loud because that's so (laughs) astounding to me. Um, Can you name, maybe you probably can't even, can you name all of the places or at least the countries that you lived in those, the, uh, across the countries, definitely. Um, Germany, I was born in Germany, Mm. England, New Mm. York, Pennsylvania, Missouri, and Australia. And wow. California. And California. And within those places, I moved a lot as well. I see. I see. I those are the, yeah, I think those are the ones. Okay. Now, you say that of all of your Christmas memories, you most closely relate yours to Germany. Why is that? Yes. I think there was a lot, or there was a lot of German influence over the Bruderhof. I mean, the name alone is German. Yeah, that was my first thought. Yeah. (laughs) The name alone is German. I was born in Germany and my father actually speaks fluent German, although he's English, born in Paraguay. Um, And there were just, I guess, when they first started the organization, a lot of Germans joined and they ended up kind of growing with it and becoming the lineage throughout the Bruderhof. The hierarchy in an unspoken way were, you know, these German families that had 19 children and then they all had children and they were kind of the pillar in the Bruderhof. And so I think a lot of our culture came from that and came from them. Um, again, the Bruderhof had a little bit of influence from, you know, we had some English people there and now there's actually a lot of Koreans that have joined and a few mm. Australians, but it was predominantly German. In fact, a lot of the songs we would sing growing up were in German. Oh, German wow. was my first language. Oh, yeah, wow. I mean, we had a Christmas songbook, which ties into Christmas, and there's like maybe 500 songs, and half of them are in German, half are in English, and each holiday actually had a songbook, and this one was a red bound book, and you go and sit in the church meeting or at a communal meal of three, 400 people, and every place, every chair has a Christmas songbook on it. Wow, And we would just sing songs, you know, every meal started with a song, every prayer meeting, every church meeting started with a song, and we would have Christmas singing evenings, and it really was the most beautiful thing and Mm -hmm. such great memories, and, you know, we would try to, I guess, include different cultures, but primarily a lot of German baking, a lot of, you know, Obviously, the manger scene was very, very important. Mm. And St. Nicholas, there was no such thing as Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. Um, Not much American Christmas tradition, honestly. So St. Nick and, you know, we had stockings, but in the stockings were apples and oranges and maybe a chocolate if you were lucky. And I think apples at Christmas is very German. We would hang apple ornaments on our Christmas trees and that was it. We would light candles. We would have candles on the Christmas trees. Mm. Candles and apples. And that was... And then, you know, little wooden shoes as decorations and um, yeah, manger scenes. We would always dress up on each community. We would have a live nativity, I guess that's the other way of saying it. And 
someone would dress up as Mary and Joseph and a baby and we'd have camels and sheep and hay bales and we'd, you know, procession, we would follow someone, an angel with a candle and we would all go to this major thing and sing German songs. And, and then afterwards we'd go inside to the warmth and have Stalin and Bienenstisch and Lebkuchen cookies and mm. a blue wine, which is the spice mold wine for the adults and apple cider for the kids and very communal, very very biblical but childlike in a way i remember mm. christmas being a lot of celebrating and um singing about jesus and god and heaven but it was just yeah pure song and celebration and food but not gluttonous in a mm. way just mm. german cookies and simple they're all about simplicity mm-hmm. so this felt very abundant because we had more than one dessert like we mm. literally had desserts in the community but at Christmas, we had four different cookies on a platter. <laughs> they were all dipped in chocolate. And I remember working in the kitchen. It was just so exciting because we were just making cookies after cookies. And um, Stalin, which takes days and days, mm. and it's a lot of work. And it's a very long recipe, which I was going to include. But I figured, you know, most people wouldn't make it. It's easy enough to buy Stalin. <laughs> Let's do something that's a little more unique. And um, I know it's interesting that I sent over an English recipe, but I am half British mm-hmm. or half English and half Hungarian. So I think that ties mm. more into me personally, because my mom and my dad, you know, they brought a little bit of their own background into our home. Mm-hmm. But the community overall, which I think is mm-hmm. was more of the experience for me growing up we I mean pies are very close to my heart I love making pies I was almost obsessed with like creating the perfect pie dough and is it butter or is Mm. it shortening and and do you do a you know do you have to not over mix it or at what point do you extremely mix it and I really was into that growing up and just spent a lot of time baking and understanding the baking and sorry I'm getting off track here but no 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 not at all (laughs) Well, tell me, um, I'm going to go back and go through some of the things you said. So can you tell me, and I'm going to share them in the show notes, but you sent over some photos this morning of the nativity. Well, I'm assuming this is your family as the nativity scene. So tell me, I don't think there were seven of you. I think there was a mom and a dad and not quite seven in there. Let's see. Yeah, probably not. So the oldest, my oldest brother actually passed away as a baby. Oh, Um, yeah, my yeah. parents lost him, and that was obviously a very big experience for them. Mm. But then after that, they had six more. So technically, they mm. had seven children, um, six of them being boys, and then five of them lived, and there was me. I So I am the third oldest, but technically the second. The second, I see. boys younger than me. I and see. And it's possible one child wasn't born yet in that picture. I'm not sure. Uh, and that let's... was actually just us dressing up as a family. That wasn't like the communal manger scene. I see. Now, would you like? Okay, so I assumed maybe you were sort like when when would you dress up as a family like this? What would the occasion be? I guess just as a family Christmas picture. Yeah, and this was in the actual barn where my father worked because he's an animal lover and he was in charge of the horses. And this was just, yeah, they just dressed us up and we, I guess, stood in the barn where he worked. And so that is, if I sent the correct one, that is all of us. Wow. Now it makes sense because there's six. Yeah. 
I think in one, there's just, there's a baby who's maybe the second to last. Your mom's so looking I, at I him. I sent you two. Okay. And then yes. that, yeah. And then there's another one with, yeah, five boys and then you. Yeah. So that's Obviously. all of us. That's all of you. Incredible. Your older brother looks angry. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yes, there was definitely a lot of pulling strings to get us to all even stand still in a picture. <laughs> That's uh, universal. <laughs> yes, I think so. Exactly. Oh, did you have, you look so happy. I love this one of the three of you sledding. Do you know where that was? That was in Catskill. Yeah, so upstate New York in the Catskill Mountains. Wow. So I, I say that my childhood that I can recall, we did like five year stint, which was huge for us mm. um, in the upstate Catskill, New York mountains mm. on a, obviously on a Bruderhof there. But that is my, what I consider my childhood because in England and Germany, we moved around a lot between the two communities mm-hmm. and I was quite young. Um, and then I think around seven, we went to Catskill mountains and so a lot of great memories there a lot of mm. snow and sledding and skating and mm. just being out in nature i see and lots of food of course well both germany and upstate new york if you sort of close your eyes and imagine christmas with you know snowflakes swirling around you yes. and nipped you know noses and cheeks red red tipped noses and cheeks exactly. you imagine <laughs> um, both of those places so yes you- very much so <laughs> Yeah, did what, were you about to say something else about that? Sorry. No, I was actually I was just remembering we used to make snow candy as well at oh. Christmas time, which was like boiled sugar and water. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. then you'd go out into the snow and we'd write our names with it and then it would uh-huh. harden and freeze in the snow and you pick it up and you have this sugary hard candy and then written it as your name, which is just another Christmas memory I was just remembering. Sorry. Oh when you talked about the snow. So that was fun. I've read about that. I mean, I think a oh, lot really? of people listening to this have read about it in the um, Little House in the Big Woods book. Yeah. And I always wanted to try it, but it really does work, huh? It works great. Yeah. That was another wow. like, wow, when you have sugar that's not rationed, because normally sugar was rationed. Wow. A cup per person per month. And wow. so I didn't get to bake too much. I had to be very careful with how much I used and when I baked. But at Christmas time, it was just free sugar it was a free for all it was this abundance and just sweets and pies and cookies and cakes and snow candy which was just pure sugar (laughs) so you mentioned there was no santa claus but there was a saint nicholas and that surprises me because i would have expected this to be um purely the focus on you know the advent and birth of christ so how did saint nicholas um, sort of factor into the teaching that happened around Christmas in a Bruderhof. Yeah, so you are very correct in that Advent, from Advent all the way to Christmas, is extremely focused on Jesus. And, you know, the we read the Bible every single day, multiple times a day, and it was a very serious time, but the celebration. And then I think there'd be one day afterwards, maybe even the beginning of January, where... Uh-huh someone would dress up as Saint Nick and would go to the, they called it the baby house, like, which was the daycare and the school. And, you know, you can take pictures of him and, or sorry, they wouldn't take pictures. They didn't have cameras just hanging around like that. But um, it was a fun way of, I think, finalizing the holiday, but there was not much focus on it. So it was just, 
I guess they probably had a lot of meetings and debates and discussions about whether they should include this or mm. not. But I think they try to incorporate to, to not take it too seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, like for Easter, they also have an Easter bunny, but it's an mm-hmm. egg hunt. And we do that one day. And then the rest of like mm-hmm. Easter for four weeks is purely about the Bible and Jesus. Yeah. So Lent. same concept. Mm-hmm. St. Nick was there, but it was a very fleeting, fun, um, like, you know, they'd read the German story of St. Nick and, and it was not even really similar to Christmas. It was just a separate little fun celebration, oh, but it was okay. not the meaning of Christmas. It, it almost had nothing to do with Christmas. It was just around that same time. I Because Christmas really is about Christ. Yes. Right. And like you said, it was even after the pinnacle of Christmas yes, that absolutely. it was after that. It's now, what is... It's not what, sorry? No, 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 I would disagree. It's not included in the Christmas celebration. I see. Okay. Now, what is the German story of St. Nicholas? Oh, I wish I paid closer attention. (laughs) 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 Because they had a version too. And then now if you read it, I think it's actually a pretty dark story. Mm. Um, I've heard where he gives coals to children and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's almost the bad children get punished by saint nick or something i have to be honest i i don't entirely recall but it wasn't more excited about treats (laughs) right (laughs) and you mentioned um apples and oranges in your in your um stockings were there presents were they homemade or none at all yes yes so the presents hmm, i'm trying to because throughout the years the brutal have kind of does adapt a little and they change some of their celebrations and Mm. some of the things that are allowed. I know my grandmother, so my mom's mother, who was Catholic and very materialistic and very generous would mail us all these Christmas gifts. And Mm. my mom would just have to take them away and give them in to the community unless it was food. If it was food, we could keep it. Oh, you could keep your own. Oh, yes. Right. So we couldn't there would be homemade gifts and I think we would each get one thing and it would be like a wooden train that my father made or some mm. new shoes. We we made shoes as well. Mm. Um, so some new moccasins that, you know, we hunted and then we tanned the skin and then we made moccasins out of the skin or nothing extravagant or even exciting. It was just something mm. you got to open and then it was just another Bruderhof toy um, mm. or food. Food was more exciting. You know, your stocking, if, there was a chocolate in the bottom. It was way more exciting than opening a present. And my, as I aged, my brothers were still younger and they would come running into my room and wake me up and say, let me look in your stocking and see if you got something different and we could change mm. apples from our stocking. So um, I don't remember a lot of gifts. There were probably even years where they decided that giving gifts was too worldly and materialistic mm. and you know we should focus more on singing and reading stories and really understanding the meaning of Christmas. Mm. I um, see. Food was definitely always part of it. But again, on a very, very simple level, like mm-hmm. we're not talking about feasting like an average American would feast. Right. Um, but right. for us, it was extravagant. Right. I see. So homemade gifts, if any at all. Now, you talked about you liked to be in the kitchen um, and your your love of food is something that really, I mean, like pun intended, just sweetened your childhood. It made it. Yeah. It gave you so many precious memories. Tell me about the relationship between cooking, um, working in the kitchen for you and going to school. How did that, um, what were your days like? So 
trying to remember because again, it was all a journey. Obviously, as a child, um, mm-hmm. I, I went to school all day, so they don't just mm-hmm. have be, because it's in the community and because your teachers are really part of your parents' church and everyone knows and trusts everyone. School is from seven in the morning till five o'clock at night. Whoa! Um, so it's yeah, and the morning is all curricular. Starting what then, age? Like five. Five years old? Yeah, yeah, probably. And then, I mean, wow. once you're six weeks old, the mother basically goes back to work and the babies are taken care of by, you know, there's one dedicated mother who watched the three infants that are there. Wow. Um, so basically, yeah, from birth, you are in a daycare or in a school, um, which makes sense, but it's hard to explain to people that aren't from there because it's not just school, it's really like a friend. Watching mm-hmm. your children, so you can go and do your duty, which is not to be a teacher. You're not a teacher. Mm-hmm. You're the mother, but the children belong to the church. Um, wow. So then, yeah, once probably once I was in middle school, they start introducing you into the work. Um, so then the days are a little shorter, and maybe it would end at three o'clock, and then I would go work in the kitchen for a couple hours. We did a lot of gardening growing up because, mm. again, to feed four hundred people, you have huge acres and acres of gardens um and, and was farming, that like so. everybody had a family lot outside their home or would you go no, to one big okay yes, one big wow. communal garden of course my father went to school for agriculture business my father loves animals loves nature loves foraging so mm. it was a little bit of a little bit more of that with our family mm. um and still my love of foraging and picking wild berries and making things with them i get that from my father and I think mm. that's just within our family. So we did have a little personal lot in our backyard, but that's just because, you know, we shared it all with our neighbors, but we we really enjoyed that. But most mm. families didn't. And the, the garden I'm referring to was a communal garden. And it was like a factory. I mean, 30 of us kids would go with our teachers all summer after in the afternoon, we were going to pick green beans for three hours. Everyone had to pick a 10 gallon bucket of green beans. And then we would go swim in the pond. Wow. Um, it was just, part of living there and you know some people look back and call it child labor and I look back and say I learned how to work really hard and Mm -hmm. you know what it takes to grow food and I -hmm. I enjoyed it and Mm -hmm. the discipline of you know you want to go for a swim or eat a nice dinner we're going to go and pick tomatoes for two hours so Mm. that was the garden um so that was I think my first introduction to food was the growing part Mm. of it Mm-hmm. Um, and then my father working in the farm, working on the farm and with the animals, you know, he would raise the pigs and then we would slaughter the pigs and eat them. Um, mm-hmm. He would raise the cows and we would either butcher the cows or they were milk cows, um, sheep. We had, you know, and then chickens. We had hundreds of chickens. And so that was my first introduction, the foraging, the farming, the gardening. And then and, and that was obviously after school. Then I think once you reach a high school age. Mm-hmm. You just have school in the morning. Again, they went back and forth between sending high school kids out to public high school, which mm-hmm. I don't ever think went very well because it's just so drastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they would do their own homeschooling of high school kids. But that would just be a lot more rigid and more of a morning school. And then afternoon, you're going to work. So I high see. school was when I started working in the kitchen and I absolutely see. loved it. I mean, it was just like I, I loved cooking growing up. With my mom on the weekends, we cook. You don't have as many communal meals, mm. and you can have breakfast together on the weekend with your family. So that was just super exciting because I would make omelets for everybody and go around and take their orders and 
figure out what they wanted in their omelets. Wow. How old were um, you when you were doing this? Probably 10. Wow. And I remember telling my mom, like, just leave the kitchen because I want to. And I would go to my brothers and ask them what they wanted. And I was like a little private chef at 10 years old. It was so much fun. And every time we had a birthday. (laughs) Every time you had a birthday, you made a special cake? Yeah, exactly. We'd get an extra cup of sugar and I would find a new recipe in a cookbook. And that's it. That just was my introduction, I think, started young on weekends Mm. for my family as much as I could. But as far as like working in the communal kitchen, Mm -hmm. that was in high school and that was after school. Um, I see. Just cooking for the three, four hundred people, communal dinner. We had dinner every night together. Just incredible. Um, did you were you placed in the kitchen because you expressed a desire, or did you just luck out that you were in the kitchen and you loved to I be in the kitchen? You yeah, because if I expressed it, to be honest, they probably wouldn't have wanted to be there because again, pride and your focus really should be on the church and on God. Um, I don't think they ever knew how excited I was about cooking because they may have tried to maybe humble me a little more, although Mm -hmm. I was extremely humble, but just from their perspective. So I definitely lucked out. Wow. What do you remember about being in the kitchen as Christmas approached? Were you in there more hours? What did that, or was that something you did as a family? No, definitely more hours in the kitchen. There wasn't much Christmas cooking at home. Because actually during Christmas, we spent more and more time as a community and less time with our families. Ah. Um, so I don't think we even cooked at all at home during Christmas. There was no baking in my family during Christmas because the community kitchen provided um, cooking and baking for all the families. And we would make these beautiful Christmas platters of cookies with of course, we'd go and pick fresh holly from outside and fresh fur and garnish the platters and put one nice white candle in the middle and wrap it in cellophane. And each family got one of those on Advent. Wow. And we'd have Advent wreaths. So there's four candles. And each Sunday before Christmas, we light an Advent candle. Um, and then on Christmas, we would have Stalin and homemade croissants. And, um, and so, no, it was a lot more hours in the kitchen during Christmas because it was all about community and eating together and celebrating as the community. Tell me about the women in the kitchen. Do you remember them teaching you or were they kind, like how, you know, did they order you around? Did they give you private lessons? What was that like? Um, So I think there were a few, again, it originally is just, 10 women, you're put in the kitchen, here's an apron, you know, this is how we do it, here's the Bruderhof recipes. So there's a big recipe book with or recipe file with all the cards, but internationally, everybody has the same 100 recipes, and it's Christmas, and here's our 10 recipes for Christmas. And many of and them are German? All of the recipes. Many of them are German, yes. Mm. And, you know, there's a few American ones in there, obviously, meatloaf and mashed potato and things like that. Mm. Um, most are German. Some of the women were very excited about food and cooking and would teach me. Um, but some of them, it was just a job. And here's the recipe and this is how we do it. And we just get it done. You know, we had a lot of like cleaning checklists and we would scrub down the speed racks and the ovens and we would scrub our dish machines. There were no men in the kitchen. We were just taking all this massive, I mean, they had huge kettles and massive equipment that we would take apart and clean and scrub and it it was a job more than anything Mm. but internally I think I had such a desire and passion that 
it never really felt like a job to me. It was just exciting. And it was a distraction from all the confusing religious pressure and all the things I didn't understand. Mm. Um, so some of them taught me. And, and throughout my journey in the different communities, I definitely came in contact with some women who either had actually been sent out to culinary school and then came back and oh. joined or were just really good girls. You know, some people are just born with the knowledge and the yeah. intuition and the taste and mm-hmm. and the palate. And I definitely came across a few of those, but some of them had no interest and they were just, here's a recipe, get it done. <laughs> I see. I see. So again, we could do an episode on your journey out of the Bruderhof and we'll just, um, well, I mean, you, yeah, we'll, we'll shroud that question (laughs) in the veil of Christmas. And so what I would like to ask is tell me, um, you spent 15 years celebrating Christmas in New York. Tell me how that was and and however you celebrated was by choice. So what parts yeah. of your childhood Christmases did you choose to include in your um, New York celebrations? So the beginning, of course, was not so glamorous because, you know, the turmoil and troubles of leaving somewhere that was everything I knew and all I knew as a teenager who just, I, I couldn't join there. I didn't agree with the, all the beliefs and the the way of living. So leaving was was difficult. And initially, I kind of set all, everything to do with the traditions growing up mm. and my family on the back burner because I just needed to create a life for myself. I had to become a whole different person and figure out who I was and what I wanted. So I actually almost stopped Christmas and it became mm. kind of a really difficult time for me because mm. if I wouldn't put up a Christmas tree, now I'm opening that box again of the pain of not celebrating anymore and not having those beautiful memories and having family. And it was just me in New York city now, which um, was very difficult in the beginning. I then actually met my boyfriend at that time and he was Dominican and had their own culture, which Mm. a few years after moving to New York city, that really was very helpful because now I adopted his culture and his family's way of celebrating Christmas. Mm. It's completely different, but all the same feelings. You know, mm-hmm. his mom and his dad, they welcomed me into their family and they had a Christmas tree. And of course, the food was completely different. And now we were having rice <laughs> and beans for Christmas and <laughs> like all these Latin drinks. And I think Christmas slowly came back to me and I mm. accepted it, um, but not in the way that I had grown up with. And he really encouraged me to get back in touch with my family and my my past and my culture, but I needed my own time to really accept that back in without all the negative feelings that came with it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I adopted that. And then a few years later, maybe five years after leaving, I was like, all right, I'll buy a little three foot artificial Christmas tree, but I'm not putting apples on it. And <laughs> um, so I slowly brought it back in. And then I would say maybe eight years after leaving, I, I had worked through a lot of my internal difficulties and emotions and repaired my relationship with my family and my parents Mm and was really able to focus back on all the positives and the traditions and my childhood memories and not worry about the rest of it. And then a couple of my younger brothers left as well, and they came for Christmas. And then we made Stalin, we made mincemeat tarts together, we made Lebkuchen, and we had a tree Mm -hmm. and we made all these childhood we pulled out all the recipes and just cooked together for a week. And it was so amazing. And, mm. um, and you know, then I 
every year I put up a tree and mm-hmm. I insist on making Leibkuchen and mincemeat tarts every year mm. for my own sake. And, mm. you know, I have a few little apple decorations and light candles and, you know, try to remember Advent, which my father makes sure I never forget. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Christmas in New York became very much like we're going to see the Rockettes and mm. Rockefeller Center and... I mean, I loved New York City during the holidays and it was a distraction in a way, mm-hmm. but it was also just, it, it helped me celebrate. And I loved, mm-hmm. even if I was lonely and sad and I didn't have family, just going into Times Square and going to see the tree and all these people were just happy and lights and food and festivities. I think it was, it couldn't have been more opposite from my childhood Christmas, mm-hmm. but yet it was all the same. Everyone mm-hmm. was happy. There were lights, there were food, there was celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of, a bit of a messy, but honest. <laughs> That's um, yes. Well, I mean, I wouldn't, that. yeah, I wouldn't expect for 15 years that um, it would be a static celebration yes. by any means. So, um, so first of all, for people mis- listening, you have said um, Leibkuchen quite a few times, which is gingerbread, right? Yes. It's basically a German gingerbread cookie, which is typically hung up on a tree. Mm. You, like we poke a hole it's gingerbread but it has a ton of spices in it and candied orange peel and um a german type and then we usually drizzle it in chocolate and then put sprinkles and you poke a hole in it before you bake it with a straw mm. mm-hmm. sorry you poke a hole with a straw before you bake it and then you hang a string through it yes. and hang it up as an ornament around your house or on wreaths or on trees we did a lot of decorating with fir and pine mm. um like all over that was our main decoration because we didn't have Christmas decorations other than apples and candles. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Leibkuchen is, I, I still make those now, but I barely eat them. It's oh, more why? just to hang around the house. Oh, and okay. they hang there for a month. <laughs> Honestly, last year at the end of the month, I took a bite from one and it was delicious and <laughs> I ate it, but um, now can you ornamental cookie. I, I understand that with the heavily spiced and you kind of um, bake till it's real hard. Like, I understand how those are preserved for a month. But if you dip it in the chocolate, does that doesn't do well for a month, does it? So we know um, we would drizzle it with chocolate. And then on that was almost the glue. And then we would cover it in sprinkles oh, or sparkly sugar. Oh, I see. So, it, But you can definitely dip them in chocolate and eat them fresh. They're delicious. Right. And, you know, I've bought Leibkuchen in America, which is very often covered in chocolate or dipped in chocolate. Uh-huh. But yes, that would be like a fresher way to eat it. So I often just do like a royal icing, to be honest. And then yes. I sprinkle. Yeah, royal icing with some fun sprinkles and you hang it on the tree. And it's I see. Good. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. Yeah, chocolate would not work well for a month. <laughs> no, I, I was like, I don't think you would hang chocolate on a Christmas no, tree. You're you? right. Okay. <laughs> okay. With candles. No. <laughs> <laughs> with candles. Right, right, right. Yeah. I forgot about that part. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine? Um, now, wait, did you guys, you didn't actually light the candles, did you? We did. Yeah. Oh, really? I know. Isn't that, I, I think they, they, I think they do it like communally. They have a huge tree and they have an evening now, mm. which we always had growing up where there's like a hundred candles on the tree and everybody says someone they're praying for. And you oh. walk up and you light a candle and you mention someone we're thinking of during Christmas. And it's a very beautiful experience. That is beautiful. Um, and then we would have warm cider and probably Leibkuchen afterwards. Wow. But I don't think they allow it in the homes anymore because of course it's extremely dangerous. Fire um, I remember my hair, my hair caught on fire, my ponytails. <laughs> growing up but that was that was the advent count cal- the what's it called the angel chime calendar 
Mm, I don't know. I know about an advent calendar. I've never heard of the second. So yeah, we always had advent calendars that we made, of course, and inside each one was a little chocolate. Um, There was also, I forget the name of it, but it's angel chimes. So it's these little German angels that are made out of metal and they're on a little one foot high stand and you light these four little candles underneath it and it produces enough heat to turn them and they just make this little noise. And I've actually looked online and they sell them. Yes, I'm looking right now. And angel chimes. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. It's like a wind. Um, it's like a little, you know, the pinwheels, exactly. but it's yeah. instead of being vertical, it's horizontal and then the heat turns it. And oh, that's yeah. gorgeous. And, and that's like of some of now. that German ingenuity. I feel like yes. that's very, yes. wow. <laughs> oh, they're gorgeous. <gasps> yes. I didn't so know my, about these. Yeah. We had those always for Advent. Um, every family had one. And I just remember it was definitely a memorable experience. Wow. When I went to blow it out and one of my pigtails caught on fire and of course it was a huge deal. But mm. anyway, so yes, we always had lit candles on our trade growing up, but Amazing. my father was very careful about that. But that was part of the special experience of Christmas was a live flame. And mm. I'm sure there was a reason for, for all of that. Mm. Well, for, if nothing else, it is beautiful. Um, okay. Yes. Tell me about the mincemeat pies that you, um, shared. And first of all, I'm fascinated because you shared three versions, like a tart version, which I've never seen before. And then sort of the mini version, like four inches yes. wide, which I've never seen before. And then yeah. you shared a picture of yourself with like a full size version. Hearts. And I didn't know people yes. ever did that. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know. Go ahead. Um, so that I think was, I'm trying to remember how they always made them. Um, I know it was my father's favorite, favorite Christmas pastry, mm-hmm. which is why we made them a lot actually in my family. Um, mm-hmm. The Bruderhof made them rarely because they were so much work. Mm-hmm. We always, you know, growing up, my mom liked to do little individual ones. And I think she would just fold them over like the half moon and then um, crimp them with a fork. Mm. I kind of delved into the other methods of on my own. Um, but it was just, it was very traditional. She would make it for my father. We, and there was a special tin only for him. And then we would get to have from the other tin. Mm. Um, <laughs> and that she, she wasn't very innovative with food. She, you know, that was what the recipe said and that's how we did it. Um, mm. But it was, he was, cause again, his parents were English and they joined from England Um so I think he definitely adopted some of that English palate mm. from, I'm sure his parents cooked English food on the community when he was growing up. And then mm-hmm. over time, it became a lot more German influenced. So mm-hmm. that was more, of you know, my personal family mm-hmm. um, cooking experience growing up with mincemeat tarts for Christmas always. Now um, for, for people... For your father, especially, he yeah. really yeah. C- connects you, especially with your father. Yeah. So um, it wasn't until, oh gosh, probably like, oh yeah, it was definitely not until after I started the podcast. I think it was about four years ago that I learned that mincemeat pies, which I had always read about, you know, in Charles Dickens, but had never yes. heard of or seen here in the US <laughs> that I learned that mincemeat pies do not have meat in them. So uh, for people listening who don't know what mincemeat pies or tarts are, tell everyone a little bit about them, what the flavor and feeling of them is. So I think the closest flavor profile that Americans could relate to Mm -hmm. is like a fruit pudding. 
mm-hmm. or a Christmas pudding, um, mm-hmm. which I've actually never made, but I've eaten mm-hmm. a lot of like currants and candied orange, cardamom, cloves, cinnamon, very warm, very mm-hmm. kind of Christmas spices, you know, pumpkin pie spice, mm-hmm. but raisins and currants and dried fruit. And then you actually let it ferment essentially mm-hmm. overnight. So it, it just becomes very deep and warm and fruity and spicy. And then the pastry is just flaky, buttery, salty enough to counteract the sweetness mm. of the fruit. But I wouldn't really consider it a very sweet pastry. It's it's almost mm-hmm. more savory mm. because of the crust. And then there's not a lot of sugar in it. It's more just sweetness from the fruits. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to think what else always, American could always be alcohol, associated. right? Yeah, like always you always alcohol, have to soak the fruit in alcohol. Brandy, typically, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, alcohol again to help it ferment and to really bring out that kind of deep fruit flavor, and then the spices just add to that. And it's like you can't eat too much of it. You only want a couple of them or one, because um, it's just a very deep, intense flavor. I, again, I'm trying to think what in America I've had that's similar. I and I would really say Christmas can't... pudding. Or yeah, maybe. but even that, <laughs> people don't really, I mean, I didn't know what Christmas pudding was until I started the podcast. Like, I really don't think. Oh, really? No, what? I don't think there's. A I don't people, know. What... Fruitcake is like a joke in the U.S. And I would say that's the closest is they sell, you know. Like maraschino cherries, right? Or something. Yes. Like it's, it's a more artificial kind of. I just don't feel like dried fruit. I feel like dried fruit in the U.S. is basically used in salads. It's really not Correct. used in yes. baked goods. Um, Maybe like in a scone, you put a currant. Or in a like scone, yep. A mm-hmm. candied orange peel and a really fancy shortbread. But right. you don't or, have anything that's no, an oatmeal really? cookie that has raisins. <laughs> like a no. raisin oatmeal cookie. Or like oh, there you go. Yeah, tea. but... For something that's so, I mean, you find versions of this in South America, you find versions of yes. this in the Caribbean, Western Europe, Eastern Europe. Um, Everywhere but America. <laughs> yeah. And, but there's nothing, uh, unless you're coming from one of those traditions, it's, it's, it's honestly, I, I don't think there's anything that the U.S. And it's so interesting because yes. Americans had this sort of like English and German. I, I don't know why we've moved away from it in the u.s right all cakes and cookies now with frosting and it's, it, yeah, yeah just it's gooey um chocolatey, s- chocolatey <laughs> stuff which i love yeah. too i honestly, do too <laughs> i'll take a i'll take a tart or a pie like maybe it's my upbringing but you know a pie uh, or a tart or, oh. or a shortbread i'll have that any day over a super anything sweet. yeah anything buttery <laughs> flaky salty is yes. i'm i'm um I'm gravitating towards that. Yeah. Although I do struggle with the dried fruit. It just isn't like a good flavor or texture for me, but I'm, I'm excited to make these. I, I'm quite positive that anybody, anybody's going to bring me into it. It's, it's you. Um, Now I have, I've read recipes before that have the fruit soak for up to a month. And you can, yes. I don't know if it was for safety reasons because I know my Mm. mother was paranoid of botulism and, incorrectly oh. canning or fermenting because I had salmonella when I was like a few weeks or a few years old and I was in the hospital for several oh, weeks wow. in Germany. So she was very paranoid about foodborne illnesses. And we did a lot of canning and preserving. Actually, her family in Pennsylvania growing up, her dad was a trapper and a hunter and a fisherman and her mom was a canner mm. and a preserver. So she also came from the world of making mincemeat 
or I'm sorry, not mincing because she wasn't English, but all sorts of preserves mm-hmm. and canning them. But I guess once she had her own children and um, once she had my experience with salmonella, she got very terrified of incorrectly producing and fermenting food. So, wow. and I think the Bruderhof also was very safe when it came to the food and all of those yeah. procedures. So that may be why this version is not as interesting. It's, yeah. It's interesting, fascinating to me that that happened to someone who was so knowledgeable. It's, it's some, yeah. you almost have to come to the conclusion. It's, it's something you can't avoid if someone's so knowledgeable. Right. Um, made that mistake. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how it happened. I think it was probably just, it could have even been in school. Cause again, we barely ate together at home. I, I've never actually right. asked her about that story. Um, yeah. I remember be being in the German hear. hospital. She was just always yelling at us if we tried to lick the raw cake, brownie or oh, cookie dough okay. bowls. And yeah. we would like sneak cookie dough behind her back because raw cookie dough is so delicious. Yeah. <laughs> and if she would catch us, she would scream at us because God forbid that egg had someone. Yeah, she had seen that. Yeah, she had seen. Wow. Anyways. Wow. Terrified. Um, but that may be why this this version is not is, as is fresher. <laughs> yes, I think so. I, I now, believe that's why. Okay. Now, if you had to pick one of the three, the large pie, the tart, or the little four-inch pies, which would you choose? Definitely not the large one. Mm, Yeah, Um, too much fruit to crust ratio. Correct. Yes. Like, I would even make that as a large tart, like, uh, on a sheet tray, which I've actually Mm. done as well, where you just roll out a large circle, spread Um, your filling, and fold in the edges. I see. um, Mm -hmm. And then bake it that way. But for a small amount, like I would do that if I was serving 300 people. I would never do the pie again. I would serve it almost on a cookie sheet, like a mm-hmm. bar. I see. Um, yep. And you could either put an entire crust on top or, again, when I was in England recently, I was making it for a lot of people very quickly. And I just rolled out a big, random, rustic kind of circle of crust, filled it, folded it in the edges. And the middle, I had to cover with foil when I baked it because you don't want it to burn. Um, you want the brown so i would not do I that see. version for a small group okay i'd probably say the little four inch parts that have a bottom and a top might mm-hmm. be the most efficient way to go and mm-hmm. i think they're really tasty okay um because again you get more to that and it's a little easier than folding it over because sometimes the folded ones half moon can crack uh-huh because um, you know pie dough can be it could be a little temperamental mm-hmm. um so I think this, the most foolproof way is you just roll out a circle, any size really, mm-hmm. put your filling that feels right, and then wet the edges and put another circle right on top and crimp the whole edge, poke a few holes in the middle. And I think that's the best way to go. Voila. Okay. That's what I'm going to do then. <laughs> Although I have a rectangular tart and I might actually try it in there because I do think that would be really pretty. Just, I just think it would yes. be visually striking. It's a really, it's, your ratio. sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh no, no. It's just, it's like maybe three inches wide, like nine to 10 long. Oh, like it's really, I think it would just be pretty. Yeah. I had never considered doing that, but as yeah. long as your ratio of crust to filling is right, mm-hmm. which is not in a deep dish pie, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't need to do individual tarts. It's a lot of work. And sometimes, yeah, it looks, I loved the rustic one that I made where it was just yeah. like thrown together and you could see the filling and I actually put powdered sugar on the end, which is totally untraditional, but yeah, I mean, have fun with it. Just, you don't want more than half an inch of filling, which even half an inch is quite a lot. Um, okay. I can't, I can't so wait to try this. <laughs> okay. That sounds good. That sounds good. Um, 
as so I'm going to I think we're good with the um, mince mince meat tarts. And, um, you know, these are supposed to be like 30 minutes long. But of course, your story is like pretty cool. So yes. sorry, <laughs> I'm dragging it no, up. No, you are not. You, you are not. <laughs> oh, I'm not condensing okay. anything. This is amazing. I was going to oh, ask, yeah. do you have time for three, three more questions? Like kind of yes, wrapping of up. Course. OK. Yeah. OK. So my third my my third to last question, <laughs> three, okay. two, one, um, is as a sh- like, are you? You're a working chef now in LA as well. Yes. yes okay. I am. So, as a chef, um, what is the Christmas season like professionally for you? My current role is very much based on client requests and okay. different department holiday events that they're having, and they customize what they want and they'll tell me there's 40 people. We want a happy hour, you know, Christmas theme. This is our budget. This mm-hmm. is the people that are coming we want them to get drunk or we don't want them to get drunk, um, have a lot of desserts or don't. And I kind of go from there, but I love when mm. there's a little window of, we want a holiday, holiday sort of festive theme. What can you do? And then I'll do a hot chocolate bar with different toppings or, you know, wow. different types of like Christmas granola trail mix bars. And we work with local bakeries. It's very much, it's very different than if I was cooking at home for Christmas, honestly, mm. because mm-hmm. I, I have a team of people that are doing it. I still have to feed the cafeteria. I still have catering corporate events that are happening. And then Mm -hmm. we're going to have fun with this little event, but there's still a budget. There's still Mm -hmm. vegans and gluten-free, dairy-free, all sorts of allergies and intolerances I have to consider. How are we going to serve this? What vessels do we have? What is the skill set of my staff? And I only have one oven here (gasps) and I don't have a walk-in refrigerator. My kitchen in New York, which was the same law firm, just the New York York office, we had a smoker and a grill and five combi ovens and a walk-in, and I had very talented staff. It's extremely different here, but you didn't ask about that specifically, sorry. But in general... it's it's fascinating to me. Every word you're saying is fascinating. Yeah, this this is just info that ties into me and my story and just being a chef. And then the difference between a chef at work Again, in my specific work, because if you ask a restaurant chef, it'll be completely different. But mm-hmm. I'm speaking mm-hmm. about me and, you know, the corporate dining side of things. Christmas is, you know, it's fun because we have up some decorations, but the decorations and the decor are all based on what the client wants and how they want to represent their office. And, mm-hmm. you know, no Santa and no red, but we can have white because it matches the theme and our views need to really represent all the corporate nonsense. Mm. But with our staff, I always, always, always make sure we have a staff holiday party. And I put a big whiteboard on the wall and I tell everybody to write something from their culture down. And in New oh. York, you know, someone made rice and beans and someone made Jamaican jollof rice. And then someone else made flan. And this other girl made empanadas from wherever she was from. And it was so much fun. And, you know, I, of course, I filled in the blanks with some English things and some fun American stuff. And, um, so I think that's the funnest part of it at work is just getting our kitchen staff together mm. and everybody brings something from their culture and everybody cooks and we just have a kitchen party. But as far as cooking for the client, it's very driven by them. I see. Um, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like fun on both accounts. You get to be flexible. Uh, I mean, you get to be creative, like within boundaries. I think that's always a yes. challenge that chefs love it to is. solve, right? Like a little puzzle yeah. to solve. But to um, celebrate with your staff as well. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So my second to last question. (laughs) Um, 
you talked about these um, happy memories of singing a lot of them German songs um, leading up to Christmas on Christmas. Do any of those songs resonate with you today? Do you sing any of them? Do any of them um, have a meaning or a particular give a particular warmth or softness in your heart these days? Or is that something you've left behind entirely? So I do hear like we have some of the standard Christmas songs that they would sing. Maybe it was um, a Christmas song that they would sing in German, but Americans sing it as well. And I'll hear Mm -hmm. it in a grocery store and it just takes me back. Um, Or, you know, Silent Night, of course they would sing that, Mm -hmm. but in their version, and maybe they would, they would often change the lyrics to songs if they were too worldly or too Catholic or too American, and they would make it a little more childlike or German. And I'll often hear Christmas music that resonates with me because of the way we sang it or part of growing up. Um, I don't necessarily sing any of the songs, but Mm. I do have a couple CDs from when we grew up and even classical music that is Christmas sort of themed that my dad would play every Sunday morning um, during Christmas. And I'll listen to that. So music definitely takes me back, Mm. but I don't necessarily sing these songs or even if I'm with my brothers like we may think about it or talk about it but we don't sing them per se Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're nostalgic for you but you don't um, participate through them yeah I mean I've done some definitely like Christmas caroling was something we always did as well we would go into town and Mm -hmm. sing and give out cookies to locals and we would have like hot cider stands and um and missionary again mission work they would do a lot of so we yeah we would do caroling so if i ever see christmas carolers of course that mm-hmm. is fond for me as well good memories and sometimes i'll join in again in new york you saw that a lot mm-hmm. um really there's Men- christmas carolers Mennonites. in new york oh really yes, there would be mennonites that would come and they would and it would just like trigger me and in, in a shocking way but in a beautiful way where i'd be walking wow. through times square and there's like 20 women with bonnets and dresses and they're singing Christmas songs. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> and it was sweet and it would take me back. And mm. so yeah, Christmas music in general, but not American Christmas music and not anything about Santa Claus and rocking around the Christmas tree. Like mm-hmm. none of that, that that's stuff I've adopted now, but mm-hmm. yes, any, any sort of um, Christian related Christmas songs. Definitely. It takes it back. takes you back, but it's not something yeah. that holds like a particular meaning that lasts except for as a connection. Yeah, I think so. You know, one day if I have kids and we're, you know, creating our own cultures and traditions, Mm -hmm. I think I would maybe reintroduce some of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But right now, just on my own, Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily sing the songs on my own Mm -hmm. or have anyone that I sit around and sing them with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, my last question, I think... um, (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that's, I think, what you were pointing out in your... um, last response you know you have talked about how your personal christmas celebrations have changed over 15 years and then just now you hinted to the fact that they will continue to change um you know as life goes on as your family Mm -hmm. grows and things like that but for now as a snapshot in time um on your 33rd year of life unless you turn 34 (laughs) over the next two months but in your 33rd year of life what will christmas look like for you this year personally hmm, that is such a good question i'll probably be under a palm tree maybe on a beach 
Okay. That sounds pretty <laughs> probably drinking, Yeah. Probably drinking apple cider. That's maybe cold, not warm. Mm. Um, definitely eating some mincemeat tarts, maybe with mm-hmm. an iced tea instead of a hot tea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I'm really trying to see if I can get one, if not two of my brothers over here to visit me. Mm. And yeah, so just, I really would love to be with family. I'm actually going to visit an uncle with one of my brothers in New York for Thanksgiving. So that will be a really fun, special time, but Christmas, because I can't take that much time mm. off of work. Um, hopefully, I mean, it'll be local here in California. It'll mm-hmm. be warm and I will definitely indulge in some of the traditions and definitely some baking and cooking. I just don't know who will actually participate. I've made a few friends here that I'd love to see around the holidays and introduce them to my, to what Christmas is for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's starting new but really mm-hmm. seeing who i can enjoy my traditions with this year and in california mm. wonderful and a phone call with my parents you know a video with my some of my nieces and nephews that are either still in the bruderhof or have uh. left the bruderhof i have a brother who has a niece and a, a niece and a nephew of mine in england and i'm actually going to visit them a week before Christmas because Aww. my nephew turns one Aww, and I can't miss his first birthday, but I'll miss Christmas with them. So Aww. I had to choose and I was like, you know what? First birthday this year, next year I'll go for Christmas. Oh, but I nice. have been seeing them. So I think just really trying to be with family for Christmas, mm-hmm. which is obviously a challenge for me because we live all over the world. Literally, my brothers are Australia, England, Pennsylvania, Florida, Texas, and I'm California. So wow. we are literally spread out. But really just waking up and you know even if it's me and I can get on a zoom with some of my family mm-hmm. can't be together sharing you know I'm sure they'll all be eating something German something from our childhood <laughs> and trying to uh, be together across the world Lebkuchen and you know Leibkuchen. lighting candles on our tree <laughs> yes um, oh. but I will definitely tell you how it is after and let me know that's, that's what I predict <laughs> yes that's my prediction of this year yes it'll be new in itself so Sounds wonderful. Diana, thank you so, so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. And listeners, thank you again for listening to the end. As always, I ask you, I beg you, I plead with you to leave us five star review um, of the podcast in your favorite player. Also to subscribe to the Storied Recipe newsletter so that every Friday you will hear about the featured episodes, the featured recipes, and also weigh in on future episodes of the Storied Recipe podcast, who and what you would like to hear about. I think that's it. And I hope you have a great week, my friends.